Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. As a nation, we seem to regularly go through paroxysms of demanding law and order, a form of political rhetoric that, while it has its roots all the way back in the 16th century, is with us once again today. In our contemporary history, there was Nixon in 68, New York in the 70s, and then there was 1994, when law and order reached some kind of crescendo. Rudy Giuliani had become mayor of New York. The Simpson case shined an arc light on domestic violence, and California passed three strikes, and Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act. It was a kind of perfect storm of both enforcing law, protecting women, and injecting steroids into the business of mass incarceration. How this ultimately worked out for women and the broad impact that it had on the criminal justice system is something that my guest, Aya Gruber, tackles in her new book, The Feminist War on Crime. Aya Gruber is a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's a former public defender and a frequent commentator on criminal justice issues. She's appeared on all the major networks and has been featured in the New York Times, the Denver Post, and the Associated Press. It is my pleasure to welcome Aya Gruber here to talk about the feminist war on crime, the unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration. Aya, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you here. One of the things that you argue is that by fighting violence against women, that inadvertently many of the women that were engaged in that fight kind of became soldiers in the war on crime. Talk about that first. Yeah, I think that you know, women have always rightly worried about violence and sexism, and those are two related phenomena throughout time. So you can understand the position that American feminists and activists have always been in. And my book sort of traces the movement back to the latter 19th century. And they made choices within conditions where women's rights weren't robust. In fact, when women started, you know, lobbying and pushing for reform to control violence against women, women weren't even enfranchised yet. They didn't even have the vote. So there were a limited amount of legal and political tools that women had to effectuate change. And they had to make choices within that system. And often their choices coincided with the tools that were politically expedient or the ones they could use. And those were often criminal law and criminal law was always a mixed bag to feminists. Um, you know, the state and the criminal system is something that feminists have long considered a, a masculine system. And we see that with policing, the violence of policing that is driven thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the world to the street. So feminists were always a little bit ambivalent about it. But what we see is that throughout time, feminists repeatedly went to the tools of criminal law, you know, and, and that was in part because they were easier to use. They were easier to use than getting broader structural social and economic and cultural change. So over time, we see feminists consistently go to criminal law, and we see that feminism actually shapes the modern criminal system, just like participation in the modern criminal system shaped feminism. And you talk about it being a mixed bag. Where was the downside for women in pursuing that route? 
Well, I mean, there are several downside, uh, downsides, and it depends on sort of wh- where you look at the history. So I'll give you an example that came from the turn of the century. Feminists were very concerned with sexual violence um, and uh, this idea that men were preying on vulnerable women, that they were seducing women and, you know, having sex with them, ruining their marriage prospects, and then they would go into a life of prostitution. So the feminists, uh, many of whom were in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was very pro-woman, but at the same time, extremely moralistic, right? So like against vice and against alcohol, they went on a campaign to not only reform the law, to change the age of consent to make it harder for men to rape, right? So they raised the age of consent, which was extremely low at the time, around 10 years old, to 17, 18 years old. Well, this had the effect of protecting many women, right, because it was easier to bring a seduction or a rape case against men. But at the same time, feminist movement to make illegal underage sex landed more young girls than young men in reformatories. So it actually had the effect of jailing disproportionately women. And these were sort of low-class women, women of color, ethnic women. So that's just one example of the ways in which a feminist criminal law enterprise actually had the effect of jailing women. I'll give you another example. Um, This example is from the latter 20th century. Um, Feminists launched a remarkably successful campaign to get police who were, at the time, pretty reluctant to arrest in domestic violence cases. Uh, They either mediated out the case or they ignored it for sexist reasons or they did a variety of things. Um, But they didn't often arrest. So feminists initiated lawsuits and, you know, uh, policy lobbying and really got police departments and states to adopt policies uh, where if police were called to a domestic violence call, they had to make an arrest. So interestingly, this had the effect of, yes, increasing arrests of men and disproportionately men of color, um, often against the wishes of the women, right? Maybe they wanted the violence to stop at the moment, but they didn't want him put in jail because that was their economic security or, you know, their children's father. But here's something interesting. It more significantly increased arrests of women for domestic violence. So they did this study in California where they compared the arrest rates of women before and after the advent of a mandatory arrest policy. And they found that the mandatory arrest policy had increased arrests of men for domestic violence by 60%. But it had increased arrests of women for domestic violence by 400%. So the idea was, you know, you told police, hey, don't exercise any discretion, go in there. And if you see any sort of, you know, violence in a domestic situation, you arrest the person. Well, they took that seriously. And yes, they increased their arrest of men, but they also arrested women, which because of the masculinist norms of policing, they were before pretty reluctant to do. So those are two examples where the feminist criminal law reform actually Uh, led to women being incarcerated at a higher rate. And put that in the larger context of that moment, because it was a peculiar time 
around 1994 when you had things like three strikes here in California and you had the Simpson case, which shined this really bright spotlight on domestic violence and the passage of the Violence Against Women Act, that all these things were happening at virtually the same time. Absolutely. 1994 was a big moment, not just for violence against women and the policing in that space, but just policing and prosecution and imprisonment in general. And just to give you a little bit of background, I think it goes, you know, far before 1994. I think it goes to 1988, where you had the disastrous Dukakis political bid that many Democrats saw as you know, the result of tough on crime politics, right? There was this really race-baiting Willie Horton ad that had attacked Dukakis for furloughing, um, you know, basically somebody that was in jail for murder to attend a funeral. That person, um, you know, walked away from jail, committed rapes and murders, including a rape and murder of a white woman. And this was a black man. And there was this really scary Willie Horton ad that was being played um, that, you know, many political insiders attributed George H.W. Bush's win to that ad. Right. And so after that ad, the Democratic Party became really preoccupied with the crime control issue and they feared the what one insider called the, quote, Hortonizing of the entire Democratic Party. So there was actually a strategy that insiders called the Biden-Schumer strategy to sort of take control of the crime control issue. And within that strategy, basically Biden was the architect of the 1994 crime bill, which eventually, when Bill Clinton ran for president, became a signature of both his campaign and his presidency. And, you know, at the time, um, the Democrats were boasting, look, we're the party of tough on crime. We're going to, you know, have the biggest legislative package on crime ever. We're going to put 100,000 new police officers on the street. We're going to build 100,000 new jail cells. We're going to create over 60 new death penalty eligible offenses in the federal government. We're going to eliminate parole and we're going to create three strikes rules and just a slew of mandatory minimum sentences. And guess what? The 1994 bill did all that to the point where both the Clintons have apologized for it, and so has Joe Biden, right? They've, they, they've done, you know, rounds of mea culpas right. on this bill, right? So, so I mean, this was, I mean, the uh, bill. And even though it was only a federal bill, right, and, and it did increase the federal prison population by hundreds of percent, it is credited or, or maybe I should say blamed for setting a trend that many states followed, right? The tough on crime politics trend, and also things like three strikes, elimination of parole, right? So just the prison population just, you know, grew and grew and grew under Clinton's presidency. Well, the interesting thing about it was that some, and maybe not enough to actually defeat the bill, but some Democrats and independents were extremely skeptical of, you know, the promise of tough on crime and, and, and it flew in the face of all their liberal sensibilities. And, and one of those Congress people was who was then in Congress was Bernie Sanders. And so Bernie Sanders took to the floor 
of the House, and he spoke out against the bill. He said we could either electrocute or we can educate. You know, we can give people jobs or we could build jail cells. So he was extremely against this 1994 Clinton-Biden crime bill, right? But at the same time, the Violence Against Women Act was part of that bill. And it was going on during this, you know, O.J. Simpson trial. And, you know, many um, of the supporters of the Violence Against Women Act, especially the women in Congress who were the architects of that act, you know, invoked uh, Nicole Brown Simpson over and over again. So it had some, you know, a, a racial tinge to it, too. Um, and so the Violence Against Women Act, which, you know, wasn't 100 percent incarceration centric or, or carceral, right? It, it did have some grants to like shelter housing and uh, it had a civil rights remedy that was eventually struck down by the Supreme Court, but it had some non-criminal things in it, but the bulk of it was creating new crimes in the violence against women's space and giving money to prosecutors to, you know, set up prosecution units. So the bulk of it was pretty criminal. Well, anyway, that act um, and an assault weapons ban was enough to convince Bernie Sanders, who was extremely skeptical of the crime control model. It was enough to convince him to vote for the crime control bill, three strikes and all. So you see VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, being an incredibly important part of that 1990s turn to criminal law. And was there any pushback, any feminist pushback to the Violence Against Women Act at that point? Well, I think it was just such an important victory. I mean, it was really the first act that said, you know, we're going to give women a civil rights remedy for for violence. We're going to recognize that violence against women is a function of sexism. And this was incredibly important to feminists. And so, uh, you know, it didn't really get much pushback. But then just, you know, six years later in a case called U.S. v. Morrison, the Supreme Court actually struck down that civil rights remedy. They said that Congress didn't have the federal power to create a civil lawsuit for women who had suffered violence. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was it was a pretty sexist turn of events because the uh, federal judges had come out with a statement, oh, you know, women are going to try to use this civil rights remedy as a bargaining chip in divorce, and they're just going to lie. And, you know, so it was a pretty sexist opposition to the civil rights remedy. And just a few years after the passage of the bill, the Supreme Court struck the civil rights part down. What it left intact was all the criminal parts, right? So then you had you know, the part of the Violence Against Women Act that feminists like the best, just gone. And you're left with this 1994 crime bill and a very carceral Violence Against Women Act. So that's how it worked out. And U.S. versus Morrison wasn't even, I mean, it was controversial, but the court was pretty unified in, in that. Yeah, I mean, and it was kind of, you know, a a dry, I guess, for the layperson issue of federal power, right? Like, where does the power 
to create these lawsuits come from? Does it come from the Commerce Clause? Does it come from the 13th Amendment, right? And the court said, we can't find any federal power here. If, you know, what some feminist scholars have said is the reason the public wasn't outraged at it is they didn't really understand the civil rights remedy because they always saw things like domestic violence and rape as this one-on-one criminal issue, you know, lock them up and throw them in jail. And that part of the statute was preserved, right? So they didn't understand that for feminists, the idea that you had a right to be free from gendered violence, not that gendered violence was just a matter of what bad individual men do, but this is a matter of patriarchy that affects women's rights. That's what the feminists really cared about, but the public didn't, right? Like Morrison, you know, it, it, you know, compared to the Supreme Court cases that have been coming out today, it didn't make a splash. It did, you know, maybe in the pro- feminist professoriate, but people had always seen you know, DV and rape as a criminal issue. And now we're being really tough on crime and we have these lifelong offenses. Um, and that satisfied the public. Were there any predicates put forth then or and, and talk about what's evolved since in terms of what the alternatives might be? Well, if, you know, just talking about domestic violence, for example, um, if you look at the battered women's movement the very early one of the of the 70s, right, the early and mid 70s, it was all alternatives. There was no criminal law in the picture. So the first thing um, that happened was you had shelters uh, where women could go when they were facing violence, right, in the home, domestic violence. Um, And that was a basic need, the basic need of housing. Well, these shelters were welcoming women. They needed money, right? They needed funding and they needed funding for other things, not, not just providing the housing, but also childcare, job training, uh, skills, um, you know, uh, social services. Um, so these were the really, uh, first roots of the battered women's, uh, movement. There were also all kinds of proposals on the table for things like housewife wages, welfare reforms. Uh, The early battered women's activists recognized the deep connection between women's inequality in the marketplace and women's poverty and domestic violence at home. There were also social scientists who were studying family violence, and they recommended things like family counseling or individual therapy, right, Um, or ways to reduce social and marital stresses. Um, so that you could reduce violence against women or or actually any family violence within the home. So, you know, today we would call shelter, services, job training, wages, welfare, benefits. We call all those things alternatives to incarceration because for 30 years, 40 years, incarceration has been the norm. But back in the day, incarceration was the exception to the norm. The norm was let's look for ways to better these women's lives and give them alternatives and not ways to lock people up. It just so happened, right, that what was a smaller part of the movement, which was getting police to arrest and prosecutors to prosecute and lengthening jail sentences became 
the primary focus of the battered women's movement. And this coincided with a time of rising crime control interests in society. And that was really, you know, that was probably started back with the Nixon administration or before, but that was really put into political play during the Reagan administration. So you have these confluence of factors where people were becoming really concerned with criminals, um, with blighted communities, with sort of like gang members out of control, super predators. And at the same time, you had the iconic vision of a victim, which was a child or a, a white woman subjected to horrific abuse. And within this milieu, you had a very small segment of the battered women's movement pushing for more criminal law, and that's the one that took off. So today, we think of the battered women's movement as the thing that brought us policing, prosecution, and imprisonment. And we look for alternatives to that. But in the beginning, this, this was just alternatives. It was about how to you know, reduce the stressors and the discrimination in battered women's lives. Um, so it's just interesting today that we come full circle after a 30, 40 year experiment with tough on crime. And it's interesting to look at it in the context of today when we're talking about police and what they do and maybe taking them out of the domestic violence picture. Yeah, because it was such a fight to get police into the domestic violence picture. So what would happen, you know, in the 60s and in the early 70s is you would have police departments and they would have mediation policies and they would say, okay, when you get a domestic violence call, you have to go and you have to try to see what's going on. And if you can solve the situation short of an arrest, you should do that. Right. And so police officers actually hated domestic violence calls for a couple of reasons. One was they were very dangerous. Right. When you go into an, an angry man's house and, and I would say they're more dangerous today with all the, you know, uh, guns that have been amassed in these these homes, but but they were very dangerous situations uh, for police officers then as now. So they didn't like domestic violence calls for that reason. It was dangerous. And the second reason they didn't like domestic violence calls was, you know, they police were in the mode of making arrests. So when somebody called and said, oh, okay, you know, guy just stole my person. He's running down the street, and they could arrest the guy. They have a grateful victim. They make an arrest. They quote unquote solve the sign, uh, crime problem. If they went into a domestic violence situation, they may find that, you know, they can't make an arrest, right? They, they weren't supposed to make an arrest. An arrest wasn't appropriate in this situation. And if they did make an arrest, maybe the woman would yell at them for arresting the guy. Um, or, you know, he would lose his job, make her worse off. So the police went in there. It was very dangerous. And they felt like they couldn't make an arrest and, quote, unquote, solve the problem. So they really hated these domestic violence calls, and they often wouldn't make arrests. Well, feminists noticed that, and they said, this is terrible, right? Uh, a lot of them were lawyers in courts. They had clients who were horribly beaten and had begged the police officer to make an arrest, and, you know, the police officer didn't make an arrest. So in the eyes of a lot of the feminist activists, a lot of the lawyers you know, the problem was that women really wanted them to make an arrest. Police refused because they were sexist 
right? And, and thought abuse was no big deal. And then the woman would end up dead, right? That was the narrative in a lot of the activists' mind. And the one that they brought to court, they brought that narrative to court. You have a bunch of sexist abuser police officers out there who refuse to arrest and the women end, end up dead. And that was, you know, unfortunately true in some cases. But in the majority of cases, it wasn't that simple or linear, right? The vast majority of cases didn't end up in a homicide. And it wasn't clear the role that arrest played and whether it increased or reduced the chances of homicide. So really, these police weren't arresting a lot of the time because they thought that the arrest would escalate the violence. Um, the, the victim herself was asking them not to arrest, or they thought that it would economically harm the couple. So there were various reasons why they wouldn't arrest. But feminists got really concerned about this, you know, sexist sort of Neanderthal cop narrative. So they really pushed for arrest. And within short order, police started welcoming arrest, right? They, you know, one criminologist observed that police were happy because they were, quote, out of the social work business. So then we had these mandatory and preferred arrest policies and police went in there and they arrested and, you know, that was easier for them. That was what they were used to doing was busting up in there and arresting people. Well, then once these arrest policies were in effect, uh, social scientists started studying, you know, what, what does arrest do? You know, were police originally right that it increased violence or does it deter the violence? Uh, does it make women more likely to be killed in or less likely to be killed in the future? And they started studying it. And, and within a few years, it was fairly clear that arrest was no panacea. Um, you know, sometimes it worked. Sometimes when they followed up the couples, uh, some of them experienced less violence. It tended to work. Uh, amongst white couples where the man was employed. Um, those were the ones in which an arrest could actually just stop the violence, um, but not always. And in a lot of jurisdictions, especially in poor communities of color, arrest tended to escalate violence. And this is very consistent with a lot of the social science on arrest, that it actually causes various traumas and disruptions that can increase violence, especially amongst the most marginalized people. So they were finding that, you know, these were very, these arrest policies were very criminogenic, especially, and, you know, and put women at more risk, especially the most marginalized women of color. Um, and so they were also fi finding these profound racial effects and um, increasing violence against women. And, you know, years later, a researcher studied the domestic homicide situation and compared pre-mandatory arrest to post-mandatory arrest and in states within and without mandatory arrest and found that mandatory arrests actually correlated to an increase in domestic homicides. Uh, because, you know, when the police bust up in there, it might discourage uh, the most at-risk women from calling again. And, you know, it can disrupt the cycle just momentarily just to have someone in there and prevent a homicide. So it turned out, and, and pretty quickly it turned out that, you know, this arrest program actually was extremely costly 
And it wasn't really solving the problem and had all these racial issues. But by the time this social science came out, which was in the late 80s, it was kind of too late. The ship was sailing. There's no politician that rides in saying, look, I'm putting abusers in jail. I'm preventing domestic homicides. I'm protecting women. There's, there's no politician that's going to ride in saying that. And then a few years later say, whoops, you know, let's, uh, let's undo all this tough on crime legislation. So they're still in the books and it's very difficult um, to get that kind of reform reversed. The other part of the equation, we don't have a lot of time left, but the other part of the equation was the prosecutors and the fact that it also involved these no-drop prosecutions and forced separation. So there was a role that prosecutors played in this as well. Well, absolutely. And that was one of the reforms, right? So you had prosecutors who also didn't bring these cases. And most of the time they said, look, we think that it's a waste of resources often to take these cases because we'll prosecute the person, we'll make the family worse off, and they'll be back together and we'll have to prosecute him again. And, you know, she won't show up to testify. And, you know, uh, the battered women's advocates were saying, you know, sorry, you, you have to take these cases to court. It's what women deserve. It's a matter of gender justice, right? So that was the idea. But, you know, what these reforms ran up against is it wasn't just the prosecutors saying, oh, I think it's fine for a man to beat a woman. It was that the women weren't showing up to testify a lot of the times. And so what do you do, right, when you're a feminist reformer and you believe that a conviction is the key to gender justice, but the victim themselves won't cooperate? Well, for some reformers and some prosecutors, the answer was to force the victim to cooperate. So either with the threat of jail, right, or subpoenas, and, and you know, we're going to force you against your will to cooperate in a prosecution against your intimate partner. Uh, when you, you know, want to refuse because you want to stay together or for the kids or because you don't want him to get deported or because you're scared of him and you, you're in the best position to know, we're going to force you to prosecute. So that was one of the you know, more pathological things that happened. Uh, or they would proceed with, you know, the police report or hearsay evidence and say, we're going to prosecute even if you don't come in. We're going to prosecute this, you know, the, the person against your will. And there was a lot at stake here. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, immigrant couples, um, this kind of conviction made the man deportable. So it wasn't just a matter of, okay, you know, I want him to get some help or I want to disrupt this cycle of violence in the moment. When women called the police for domestic violence, it triggered this unstoppable penal machine, right? And this penal machine was put in place um, because of the complexities of domestic violence. There were so many barriers to like quick arrest, go through prosecution, get to conviction, get to jail that, you know, a lot of men weren't being jailed for domestic violence. So the answer was, we're just going to create this machine, this conveyor belt of, you know, call the police to jail, and that's going to solve the problem. Well, it turns out that the reason men weren't being shuffled into jail in the first place was that it was a really complex problem. Um, and so now we're seeing the result of that 
even though arrests have precipitously declined over the past 20 years with the crime rate declining, arrests for domestic violence have not. They've stayed steady and increased in some places. Um, You know, the domestic violence arrests and prosecutions and imprisonment now outpace non-domestic violence, you know, you know, non-domestic assault arrests and jailing. And for several years running now, women have been the fastest growing segment of the prison population. And a lot of that is due to arrests of women for assault. And, and, and the, you know, ironic part, it was really feminists who put into place this police mentality. Don't use your discretion. If there's violence, it's unacceptable. You make an arrest. And police have been more than willing to do that, including arrests of women. And do you see finally any of this changing right now? I do. I do see, uh, change being in there. I know we've seen this several times, you know, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement after um, the George Zimmerman case. We've, we've seen it after Eric Garner. We've seen it in Ferguson. But I think what has changed in the latest round of protests, not only are they worldwide and lasting for months, so that is absolutely unprecedented in history, but I think we're seeing a broad consensus that this isn't just a fiction of, you know, um, carceral critical progressives or black activists. This is a reality that we have a deeply racialized and sexist, by the way, um, policing, prosecution and prison system. And there needs to be some serious reform. So one of the things I've seen, which is very interesting, is in this defund the police movement that's getting momentum, which really probably should be called, you know, reinvest policed funds. Uh, But they're talking about ways in which, you know, when people call 911 and they have an emergency, you could send out people who, you know, like aren't armed officers that can also kill you because you called the police. And one of the, so they're talking about, you know, services for juveniles, or maybe, you know, it's, it's better to send the EMS, or you could uh, send mental health professionals. So different um, kind of crisis interveners that aren't police. Well, one of the things that I've seen included with those alternatives are family violence experts that can go in and mediate domestic disputes. And it kind of turns my mind around because as somebody who studied this issue, mediation of domestic disputes was like the dirtiest, most sexist phrase to feminists in the early 80s, right? Like if, if, if you were for mediation, you were sort of a raging chauvinist. You needed to be for arrest. Um, And it was crazy. They would they would actually there were articles written on how sexist the idea that you would mediate a domestic violence uh, dispute was. And so to see that uh, cropping up again and being proposed says to me that something really has changed, that people are starting to realize that, you know, this idea of sending in armed masculinist police to put people in jails that are rife with sexual and other violence 
may not be the most feminist solution to violence against women. And so I think that's changed. Like, I think people are seeing that now and I'm excited to see, I, I mean, I just hope that this moment, you know, there's so many things going on in the, in the world and this caught fire, this idea that, you know, the state of the American penal state is intolerable to many people right now. I really hope that that, you know, has traction and does produce real change instead of just kind of fading away. I, I really do have that hope. Aya Gruber, her book is The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Aya, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.